Hey there, and welcome to Truth Be Told, a theology and apologetics podcast not claiming to have all of the answers, but created to analytically look at the truth contained in the Bible and encourage critical thinking on how to apply that truth to our lives. I'm Micah Gunn, and I appreciate you listening in. No matter your level of understanding or knowledge, I sincerely hope and pray that you find these words edifying, informative, and beneficial. So let's get started. This is brand new for me. I have never re-recorded and then re-released the same study, just a different episode before. Um, But I listened back to what I put out last time, and there were a few things wrong with the audio. I had to keep stopping and starting the recording because certain things were going on in the environment around me. And so it just didn't, it didn't sound that great. And then also uh, just the flow of the study itself, I thought could have been a lot better. There were things I wanted to say that I forgot to say. And uh, that's what you get for not having notes, I guess. But if you're listening to this for a second time, I really hope um, you didn't hate the study last time, but I hope you enjoy this one even more if you choose to listen again. And if you uh, have not listened to this before, then disregard the last few seconds of what I've been saying, because this will be brand new to you anyways. But today we are going to go over uh, two accounts in Mark chapter 9. And they're two very closely related accounts, but they seem so, so different. And these are the accounts of the transfiguration, as well as the boy that is healed by Jesus Christ, who has the unclean spirit and the father brings the son to him. These are two of the most amazing stories in the entire Bible, in my opinion. Uh, You have the glory and the amazing, awesome nature of God, as well as the deity of Christ uh, shown within the transfiguration account. And then just a few verses over, when the man brings his son to be healed by Christ, you have the amazing depths of Christ's mercy shown in this interaction. And I think you'll see both of these things, kind of two heads of the same coin of God's nature as we go through these two stories. But also there's a lot going on here that we might miss on first read through. So hopefully we can go a little bit deeper into these scriptures, see some parallel accounts. Uh, The overall structure of what we're going to be doing today is to give us some context about what we're reading. So the time frame in Christ's ministry, things like that. Um, What is being said by all these things? What conversations happened just prior to these events? Then we're going to read through the Transfiguration account, go through a few supposed contradictions that skeptics will often bring up. And uh, that might take a minute, but then we'll go right into... Uh, the next account of the son and the father, or the son with the unclean spirit and the father who brings him to Christ, we'll go through that account verse by verse as well. And then at the end, we'll look at some parallels between these two accounts that kind of separate them, but also unify them and put them in this really cool place within the context of all of scripture entirely. So that should be really, really cool. I'm very excited about this. Uh, Let's get started. If you would turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is where this account starts. It can also be found in parallel accounts in Luke chapter 9 and Matthew 17. Hopefully we'll do a little bit of harmonizing as well, um, especially when we go over some supposed contradictions. But Mark chapter 9 is where we'll start with the story of the transfiguration. But just to give you a little bit of context, what is happening here uh, just prior to this event, you have Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ in chapter 8. And uh, this is this is a huge moment. Sometimes we miss what's happening here. In verse 27 of chapter 8, I'll just read it to you if you want to hold your place in 9. It says, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? So they answered, 
John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. This verse is super important uh, contextually for what we're about to go through soon. And then in verse 29, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. So this is a big moment because this is the first time, obviously, I think the disciples knew what they were a part of. They knew that Christ was special. Um, they had probably spoken it amongst themselves, but this is the first record of an open admission we have by the disciples and then an affirmation in Christ's silence and warning to not tell anybody about this. Um, this is the first time they hear this out loud. And this would be really this weighty moment to the disciples who finally their, their suspicions are answered. Um, even though again, they probably knew it very well already, but this is when finally they know exactly what they're a part of. But what Christ does immediately after this is really interesting because they had, in the Jewish mind frame, they had this different view of what Messiah should do. Messiah was supposed to come and um, elevate the Jews over their oppressors, over Rome at this time, and he was going to kind of lead them into this glorious uh, victory over their oppressors. And so that's what they expect. That's what they think that they're a part of. And what Jesus does next uh, would really be a shock to their systems because in verse 31, it says, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. So he's teaching them this new view of what Messiah has to do. He has to die and be humiliated and put to shame by the scribes, chief priests, and elders, but then he will rise again. So this glorification does come, but it comes after this uh, suffering that he has to go through. This would have been a real shock to the disciples' system. And obviously it was because in verse 32, it says, he spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So this is what's happening. This is the context we have for uh, this next account that we're going to go through, the Transfiguration account. And I want you to keep in mind that at the very beginning and at the very end of these two stories of the Transfiguration, as well as uh, the healing of the boy with the unclean spirit, it is re-emphasized both by Christ and the gospel writers that Christ has to die and then he'll be glorified. So this is a two-step process and this is re-emphasized at the beginning and end to show that this is the main point that Christ is trying to get through to his disciples who have years and years of predisposition about what they think Messiah has to do and he's telling them what Messiah actually has to do, what the real story is. And I think if we keep it in this framework where we realize that this is the main message, uh, we're going to get a lot, really a lot out of these two stories, a lot more than just reading through narrative. Now we'll go through a little bit of other context in just a little while uh, when we get to the story about the man bringing his son with the unclean spirit. But for now, that's the context I want to go through uh, to get into the story in Mark chapter 9. So Mark chapter 9 in verse 1, it says, And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And then in verse 2, we jump right into the narrative, but I wanted to start with that verse. It says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. 
And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Verse 7, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah Uh, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. So this is our account in Mark chapter 9. There's a lot of scripture here, a lot of really, really cool narrative. But let's see what we can get out of the text itself. So first, I'd like to start off uh, with some contradictions or supposed contradictions. So at the very beginning, uh, actually, let's start in verse 2. Let's go through that contradiction first. In Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. You also have this same language in um, Matthew's account, where it says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. But the difference in Luke's account has a lot of people asking a lot of questions. Luke's account in Luke 9 verse 28 says, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. So we have six days, six days, and eight days. Well, you have to ask then, is someone wrong? Uh, what, what's happening here that's requ- that's like making these days different? And the answer is so, so simple. Sometimes people will get really, really hung up on this, especially if this is being presented to you by someone who has a lot of degrees or claims to be a Bible scholar, this can be really intimidating when someone brings you contradictions in the Bible. My advice is do not be intimidated. The Bible is meant to be read and discerned and understood by everybody, not just Bible scholars. And sometimes they have their own agendas that they'll write in uh, to scripture and they'll add meaning to it. This doesn't mean that you can't find answers or you can't find harmonizations to things. You absolutely can. And that's what I hope to show you right now. The answer here can be found so easily if we just start asking ourselves questions about what we're reading. And this is what I try and encourage you to do every time as we read and study the Bible and try and think critically about it. We should be asking ourselves questions about what we're reading and what we should be getting out of it. And the question here is just two simple words, and that is the question, after what? So in Mark 9, you have now after six days. Well, you have to ask, six days after what? And then in Luke 9... He's a little more general, but it says, now it came to pass about eight days after. So you have to ask, after what? And the same thing uh, in Matthew 17. And the question is in the thing that Mark and Matthew list that Luke does not. So Mark and Matthew list one event that Luke completely leaves out. And this is in, this can be found in Mark chapter eight. And I know you might be thinking, Mark chapter eight, that's so far back. How can you justify going that far back? But remember, chapter and verse are something added much later. Uh, Gospel writers are not thinking in chapter and verse. They're not thinking, oh, new chapter, new idea. They're continuing on a story. So you have to think like they are. And in chapter 8 of Mark, verse 31, we've already read it. You have the rebuke of Peter to Christ. 
and then Christ's rebuke back to Peter. So this is, a, this is an event, a very singular event, that allows uh, both, both Mark and Matthew to be very exact in their timing. They're both looking back to this one event and then counting down from there to the transfiguration, which makes sense because if Mark is a gospel inspired by Peter, so a lot of people think that Peter um, instructed Mark to write the gospel of Mark, and that this is actually Peter's account, which makes perfect sense. And then in Matthew, him being a disciple, they have this one event to look back to and say, from this time, from this exact moment, then you count six days and you have this transfiguration event. Whereas Luke, who is getting his gospel from uh, the testimony of people around, he is much more general. And he says, now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. He took Peter, John, and James. So he has a much more general numbering because how do you count eight days? Is it from the first time Jesus mentioned anything about this? Maybe he started speaking at noon on that day. Um, you, you don't have one event that happens. You have kind of a general beginning of Jesus flowing from one teaching into the next. So after these sayings, after Jesus starts to teach them about what has to happen to him, um, both with his crucifixion as well as his resurrection, after about eight days after these sayings is when this thing happens. So if you wanted to go through a timeline events of what is going on here in Mark 8 and, and Mark 9, you would have Jesus starting to teach uh, the disciples that he has to die and be crucified and then resurrected in three days. He starts to teach them that. This is difficult for the disciples to hear. And then two days later is when Peter can't take it anymore, rebukes Christ and Christ rebukes him, then six days from that, you have them headed up the mountain for the transfiguration event. So this is how you get eight days in Luke from the beginning of Christ's teaching, and then six days in Mark and Matthew um, after this big pivotal event where Christ rebukes Peter and Peter rebukes Christ. So it's very easily harmonized if we just ask ourselves simple, simple questions. Um, but of course, no skeptic stops there. They'll always have more contradictions to throw at us. And it's so funny too, because you'll find some skeptics that say, there's no way the Bible's accurate. It's way too similar in its account. Or there's no way the gospel writers weren't colluding because the, the accounts are way too similar. Um, they would have definitely had to collude on some of this stuff. And then you'll have some that say, see, there's so many contradictions in here. How can you ever take it as truth? And you'll have skeptics on either side. So you're gonna have to field questions from everybody. Um, thus is the nature of people wanting to disbelieve the Bible. But the next contradiction we're going to go through is actually the verse before this in Mark 9 verse 1, where it says, some standing here will not uh, taste death until they see the kingdom coming with power. Now, some will look at this and say, uh, this must mean that the kingdom of God is here or was here within the disciples time before the last disciple died. Uh, the kingdom was established or the kingdom was here. And I, I reject this view. But then the, on the other hand, you'll have people say, see, since the kingdom isn't here, Christ is completely delegitimized. He cannot be who he said he was. He did not have the prophetic power he thought he did. He was just making uh, claims and they didn't come true. I reject this completely as well. So I'll answer uh, each in turn. The first I'll answer are those that think the kingdom must have come at some point in the disciples' life. And I think this is wrong. You can easily disprove this in any of the verses in the New Testament that talks about the coming kingdom of God. Uh, in verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it talks about these won't inherit the kingdom. You can't inherit something that's already here. 
Matthew 6.10, thy kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer. Well, you can't continually pray thy kingdom come if it's already here. In Revelation 21, you have verses about the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 3.11 uh, he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast your crown or hold fast so no one steals your crown. Uh, so this is clearly a kingdom that's coming. So we have to hold fast. This is all the way in Revelation years after uh, the gospel of Mark is written. Hebrews 9.28, just to give him a few more. Uh, it says he's coming to save those who wait for him. And then Revelation 22.12, Christ says his reward is with him. So it's not here on earth right now. It is with him at his second coming. And then the last one I want to go through is one that people often go to. That's Mark 1.15. Really early in Christ's ministry, it says, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But that phrase is at hand is engidzo. It means to draw near or to approach. It does not mean it is right here. In uh, Acts 2 verse 1, to kind of draw this point in more fully, it says the day of Pentecost had fully come. And the Greek word there is sumpleru, and it means to fill up or complete entirely. He does not say this of the kingdom of God in Mark 1.15. It says it draws near or it approaches. So for those that say the kingdom of God is here right now, currently, and has been since a disciple's time, but it's only to a select few, uh, for those that think that, it just doesn't say that at all. The entire New Testament gives testimony to that fact. But then to those of you who think that Christ was delegitimized or that he didn't have the power of prophecy because you think this one didn't come true, I think you're also missing the point of what's being said. And the disciples here understood after the fact that although the account of Christ saying this and the transfiguration do happen naturally and chronologically, they included these two things in a way that relates to the two events. So they didn't list any of the other things that happened in between this being said and the transfiguration. They connect the two for us. So this transfiguration that we're about to read, or that we've just read, is a viewing of the kingdom of God, or the power of God, the unification of resurrected patriarchs in a stellar view of God's amazing glory and authority, especially when the cloud surrounds them and says, this is my son, hear him. This is uh, Christ's authority, God's authority, uh, representative of God's rule, which is in a way God's kingdom. We can also know that it wasn't meant to stay because that's exactly what Peter thought was going to happen. Uh, in chapter nine, verse five, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. So he's thinking tabernacles are not in some translations, this is rendered tents, but they are not tents. They're not places where you just kind of set up camp for an hour or two. This is not to have lunch. This is a place where he thinks they'll stay. And he's probably assuming that they're going to set up this kingdom that he's been hearing so much about. So for a second, he's been placated about this whole Jesus having to die first thing. He's thinking, okay, here it is. This is the kingdom. But then before you know it, this cloud comes, overshadows them, and the voice in the cloud. And then suddenly they look around and they saw no one but only Jesus with them. So this is even Peter thinking, okay, this must be the start of it. You said we wouldn't die until we see the kingdom. But really what's being said here is that they won't die until they see the kingdom. Doesn't mean they'll die, they won't die until the kingdom is fully established here. So that's how you get around uh, that contradiction. Again, two sides of two different people arguing things that are wrong, but you can easily uh, refute these two claims by just looking at what the scripture is saying. I'd also just like to quickly look at Peter's words um, 
or not actually his words, but even just what it says about his words in uh, verses five and six. So he wants to make this tabernacle and he says this out loud. It's good for us to be here. But then in verse six, it says, because he did not know what to say for they were greatly afraid. To me, this makes it seem like Peter's just kind of talking to talk, but he's not really sure what to say. So he just, he's like, I guess I'll say something. And so he says this, but if you follow the Greek here, it actually speaks more to him not knowing what he said or the full implications of what he said before he said it, uh, rather than him just being so afraid that he knew not what to say. He's just speaking words. It's more, he did not know what he said. And this makes a lot of sense because uh, Christ never loses focus. He knows everything that's going on. He remembers the people on the ground. His other disciples are still back there. He's not instituting the entire kingdom of God at this moment with just these three disciples. It is going to be a much grander event. So he hasn't forgotten about the people on the ground, but Peter being kind of a one-track mind kind of guy sees this glory of Christ, this deity of Christ, and he's thinking, all right, here we are. We made it. And uh, so he doesn't really know what he's saying because he still doesn't get the full picture that Christ has to die first and then be resurrected. So it's really cool to me that Christ brings Peter up here because it's almost like he really needed to see it. He was struggling with this idea of Christ having to die and go through this humiliation and rejection uh, by the leads in the Jewish community. He really struggled with this idea. So Christ is like, all right, listen, I'll show you what's coming because you're going to need to see that to get through the first part. So that's why this kind of view for Peter comes, as well as James and John, where they get to see the full glory of Christ and the deity of Christ right here in front of them. And this is another good point because a lot of skeptics will look at the book of Mark and say, Mark is one of the earliest gospels and you don't find the deity of Christ anywhere in the book. Um, this just isn't true. They'll say that, see, you find much more um, doctrine of the deity of Christ in the book of John. And this makes them think that it's some sort of doctrine that developed over time, but that this wasn't what Christ intended. And this just absolutely is not true. In Mark 8, we've already seen that he accepts the role of Messiah from his disciples. And then here at the transfiguration, we have him in all his glory and God speaking out of the cloud and saying, this is my son, hear him. So this is God himself uh, showing the disciples that this man, Jesus Christ, is the son of God and has authority here on earth. So here's deity of Christ in two very clear instances. And anytime a skeptic tells you this was a doctrine that developed much later, tell them, no, absolutely not. In the very first gospel that ever was written, it's clear for everyone to see. So then as we go down this mountain in the narrative with Peter, James, and John, uh, I want us to keep in mind the fact that what is Christ trying to teach them? What does he emphasize the very beginning and at the very end? And that is that he has to die and then be resurrected. So he has to be humiliated and be brought down low, but then also glorified at the end of this, um, as well as at his second coming, but glorified through his resurrection and uh, reestablishment into the family of God. And I think if we keep this message central to this section of scripture, we'll see that Christ is trying to teach them this throughout even the physical circumstances that they find themselves in. This is the ongoing message that he uses different teaching styles to show them, not that they get it fully, but they clearly do after Christ's resurrection because uh, he's dropping hints for them along the way. And then they see it fully after he's resurrected and they realize this is what you were trying to show us. This is what you were trying to teach us, but he does try and teach them right now throughout their physical circumstances, as well as just plainly telling them. 
Another thing to keep in mind are the two people that we just saw on top of the mountain, that being Elijah and Moses. So why do we have these two up here? Besides the fact that they're very important, prominent figures in Jewish biblical history, um, why do we have these two? I think there's a couple different answers here. One being that just previous to Mark 9 and Mark 8, Jesus asks his disciples, who do they say that I am? And they reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say a prophet or even a prophet raised up. And this is Jesus showing them that I am distinct from these two. Who people say that I am, I am not these two people. And then at the part where the cloud comes and overshadows them, and it says, this is my beloved son, hear him. This is an elevation of Christ, even above these two very important people. And so you have Elijah, you have Moses. He is not them, even though he he does uh, relate to them in a lot of ways. He does do a lot of things that kind of point to them, or the, actually the other way, they kind of point to him and his coming, but he's showing them that I am not these two people. And he does that by appearing with both of them at the exact same time. Now on the way down the mountain, we have an interaction with Christ and his disciples that show us even more clearly that he is not Elijah because the Jews had this idea uh, based out of the book of Malachi that Elijah had to come to prepare the way for the Lord. In Malachi chapter 3, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And then also in Malachi 4 verses 5 through 6, it says even more clearly, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So in end time prophecy, before this uh, Messiah should come, because they did not have this view of Messiah coming twice, they thought he should come once and restore all things, uh, raise up the Jews above their oppressors. And so they're looking for Elijah, especially if this kingdom is supposedly going to be established. So then look at what they ask in light of all of this. Look at what they ask uh, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 11. And they asked him saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So we just saw him and now he's gone. So was that the coming? Is he coming again? I, they don't understand. And he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Now this might not seem very clear. The language here is a little bit confusing, a little bit muddy. I think it's actually clear in a different gospel account. That being in Matthew 17. And in Matthew 17, verses 11, after the disciples asked him this, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So this is confirmation that John the Baptist is a type of Elijah coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. It does raise the question, will a second Elijah come at Christ's second coming to prepare the way of the Lord? I tend to think, yes, this definitely makes sense to me, especially with the language uh, that Christ says. He says, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So that's a future thing. 
But then he says, I say to you, Elijah has come already. So this speaks to me of dual fulfillment. Other people have different ideas on that. Um, but I just think, especially with Christ's language here, it makes a lot of sense that there would be a second fulfillment of this uh, at Christ's second coming. So here we have even further distinction that Christ is not Elijah, he is not Moses, but we'll actually get into coming up next, as we finally descend from this mountain, we'll get the similarities that he still shows. So this view of him as this exalted, glorified God being right in front of them at the transfiguration was for them to see that he has authority and power above them. Remember, he was preaching that he was the Messiah to them, but he didn't want the rest of the world to know this at the time. So then he comes down the mountain and shows a lot of similarities between these two people that would have been very important and also very prominent in the minds of Jewish people when they watched him do these things. So we have to be reading this in context. Remember the context of what Christ is trying to teach his disciples, as well as the context of what uh, general people would have thought of the things happening at this time, what the gospel writers were thinking when they saw these things, especially since they're writing in hindsight of all of these things and in hindsight of the resurrection and the glorification of Christ. We have to keep these things all in mind at the same time if we're going to read this as anything more than just a cool narrative where Christ does some interesting things. I think there's so much more going on here. So then, this is where we get into the story of the boy that is healed of the unclean spirit. And this, uh, I'm going to again read from Mark chapter 9. But first, to give a little bit of context from this as well, in Mark chapter 8, prior to even the disciples um, figuring out or finally exclaiming or expressing that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. There's another account in chapter eight where Christ does something really, really cool that the disciples are really excited about. And this, um, this plays a huge part in the story that we are just about to read. So in, we'll actually read it from Luke nine, but it happens just before this, probably week, couple weeks before the transfiguration account, as well as this account with the healed boy. In Luke 9, at the beginning, it says, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick, and he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. So he sends his disciples out, and they do all these amazing things in his name. And they come back and they are just absolutely blown away that they can do these things. They are so thrilled with this awesome power that they have. They're seeing miracles come out of their own hands. They still credit Christ with the power to do it, but they are um, just really, really excited about this. So this newfound power sets the scene for the account that we're about to go through right now in uh, Mark chapter 9. So they're coming down the mountain. Peter, James, and John, and they see this huge crowd before them, and it is full of just general people. It has the their fellow disciples, and it also says it has scribes, and they're all disputing. So let's start reading in verse 14. It says, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them, and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? Notice none of the scribes answer here, but then in verse 17, it says, then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Verse 19, he answered him and said, 
O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Verse 20, Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsing him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So a lot of really cool scripture here, a lot of great narrative. Let's dive straight into what we can take out of this because there is so, so much. This is such a rich section of scripture. So first we're going to go through what exactly is happening here. What are we reading about? Um, trying to clarify some of the things going on. Give us a little bit of background on each of the major players in the story. Then we'll get into parallels that Christ is showing us uh, in action that we might miss on first read through. And I think this will be really, really interesting. And then also uh, parallels between what is happening here and what Christ is showing us and his overall message to his disciples that he has to be crucified and then raise again after three days. Remember, this is the central theme behind this, this whole section here. So first we ask ourselves, what exactly is going on? You have these scribes at the bottom of the mountain with the disciples and they're arguing with them. And, um, they are, they've been looking for ways to discredit Christ. These guys are experts in the law. They know everything word for word. And pretty much their job is to just know it word for word and then argue amongst themselves uh, what it means and try and gain notoriety. But here they've been following Christ around and they're arguing with the, with the disciples because they think that they have caught Christ in this slip up or in this uh, chink in his armor and they are just all too excited about it so they're arguing the, with the disciples the disciples are probably defending christ trying to defend themselves at the same time and this is what they come down on this is what peter james john and christ all see when they come down this mountain and it says here in verse uh, 15 immediately when they saw him all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him so what's the image we get from this to me I immediately think of Moses when he comes down off the mountain. And I don't think I'm the only one to see this either. I think this is something that is intentional, that Christ is trying to show us, and that the gospel writers saw themselves. And you might think, okay, I know there's parallels in the Bible. I know there's typology in the Bible. But this seems a little bit uh, far-fetched because it's just someone coming off of a mountain. And there are a lot of mountains listed in the Bible, a lot of people walking around them. So why is this exactly related to Moses? I think the answer is so clear when we look at the accounts in Exodus about Moses going up and down the mountain. So in Exodus 24, and as well as 34 and 32, we have these accounts of Moses going up 
and then going back down as well. And I think if we read these sections in Exodus, we'll see uh, that Christ himself is trying to make these connections for us. This isn't something that I'm creating. It's something that's here written by the gospel writers and then acted out by Christ himself. So in Exodus 24, verse 9, it says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be here. And I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments, which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. So here we have Moses going up the mountain, bringing Joshua with him to see God. And they see this glorious, uh, amazing image of God. And then you have this cloud covering the mountain for six days. And the word of God is revealed to Moses and also to Joshua. So many similarities here with Christ bringing his disciples up the mountain. For one, Joshua was the next in line to lead Israel. And then you have the disciples who after Christ's death will be pivotal and instrumental in the growth of the New Testament church. So you have kind of uh, the right-hand man of Moses and the right-hand man of Christ going up the mountain. You have this cloud covering the mountain and you have God's presence there as well as the word of God being revealed to Moses and the word of God uh, in Christ being revealed to the disciples. So you have a lot of similarities here that point to this being uh, a parallel account and something that Christ is showing to his disciples and something his disciples would have understood as already being parallel. Additionally, when they come back down the mountain, there are some similarities to point out as well. One being that the first thing Christ sees when he comes down the mountain is all of this uh, argumentation going on between the scribes and the disciples that he left behind. And if you'll remember, we just read in Exodus 24, Moses left Aaron and Hur, it says, to settle disagreements between them, or if anyone has a dispute, to bring them to Aaron and Hur. And here we have, uh, so these are kind of his representatives down on the ground, and Christ also left representatives down on the ground to deal with disputes amongst the people. And the first thing he notices when he comes back is that there is disputing amongst the people. Well, what's the first thing that Moses noticed when he came back? There was this golden calf, there was chaos, and he's frustrated because he's only been gone a short time and everyone's already devolved back into their old pagan ways. Christ, he also shows frustration when he comes back after only a few days and he sees all these people uh, arguing and bickering with each other. And so what does he say in verse 19 of Mark 9? O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? This is Christ showing frustration as well. Another thing that's a little bit less certain to show this parallel, but I think is really, really interesting is when he comes down in verse 15, it says immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. Now, a lot of commentaries will say, why were they greatly amazed? Would it just be the timing that he came down at the perfect time to defend himself? This maybe seems like it'd be something that'd be a relief to disciples or maybe interesting to the crowd, but not something that would greatly amaze them. 
Uh, but some commentaries will say it's possible that Christ's face was shining or it had this residual effect uh, from the transfiguration. And you can't prove this conclusively, but it is interesting in Luke's account, uh, Luke 9 and verse 43, this is after all these things happen. It says, and they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. And this word mighty power here means greatness, magnificence, majesty, and then also it can mean visible splendor of the divine majesty. And uh, a similar wording is used at the transfiguration specifically. So it's, it's, Pretty interesting to me. I'm not saying you can prove it conclusively, but it would answer the question why they're so amazed, why they run right to him, and would also be another parallel. Uh, as Christ comes down the mountain, it was very similar to Moses going up and then coming back down the mountain as well. It would also have a big indication as to why they were silent when Christ specifically asked them, what are you discussing with them? There's no answer from the scribes here. It could just be that they don't feel like uh, reviling him right in front of him or they think they'll get caught in some kind of word trap, which they typically do when interacting with him. But it could also be because they see this shining face that he has and they recognize something is going on here that they don't actually have answers for. This could be another answer to this. So then you have this account of this father bringing his son, a desperate father bringing his son to be healed by Christ and Christ isn't there. He's up the mountain. So he comes to the disciples and asks them to heal him but the disciples are unable. So Christ is getting some background information and this healing is so interesting. It is very much different than all other healings that Christ has uh, participated in, in any other account in the Bible. And I want us to pay attention to this, the fact that it's different and then ask ourselves, why is it different? I think we can find answers to it. Um, as we look at some parallels that Christ is trying to draw when he teaches his disciples that he has to be brought low and humbled and humiliated and put to shame, but then also glorified and resurrected and magnified afterwards. So let's look at what happens in this healing here. Uh, Christ gets some background information on what is going on, how long this demon has been possessing this boy. Seems like it's been since uh, childhood. So for a long, long time, this boy has been possessed and been harming him. And it says, uh, bring him to me. That's what Christ says to them in verse 19. In verse 20, it says, then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. So typically when we see demons interacting with Christ, there is this um, almost a humility or a they, they realize that they are subject to this authority. They realize that this guy is coming and he means business. This is not what's happening here. This is almost an affront to Christ. Instead, uh, it seizes him. It throws him down. And this is, this is what we see. So we have an episode of this spirit afflicting this boy. And this is right in front of Christ. This is not uh, humble in front of Christ. This is not submissive to Christ. This is a display of his power in front of Christ. And so Christ asks how long it's been happening. And the father here institutes what I see as one of the most human pleas in the entire Bible, one that we can definitely relate to. And I really think shows the absolute incredible mercy of Christ, um, his ability to look down on us with love, even though he is so powerful and so mighty, he deals with us so tenderly. And so he says to him, but if you can do anything, 
have compassion on us and help us. So if you can do anything, have compassion. Jesus says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. So he immediately turns it back on this father. And we've gone over in other episodes, uh, the relationship between belief or faith and miracles. Just to reiterate, this is not that Christ needs our faith to do a miracle. He is not bound by our faith. This is not a Tinkerbell situation where we have to believe for him to be able to do anything. And this is proven by the fact that before humans were even around, the entire universe was created by God, and he did not need our faith at that point. But Christ does choose to work in the lives of people who want him to work in their lives. So faith is not a requirement for Christ to be able to work, but faith is a requirement in the sense that he's not going to force his work in our lives. So we need to have faith so that we allow Christ to work in our lives because he's not going to force himself on us. And that's what's happening here, just to go over that really quickly. But immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So this man knows, he believes that Christ can heal this boy, but he knows he has doubt. He knows that he's human. He knows that he just saw the disciples fail when he believed probably that time as well. And so he asks not only for God to heal his son, but also to fix his unbelief, to give him the very thing that he needs in order for this thing to happen. And he realizes he doesn't have it. And this is just incredible because we need to have belief. We need to have love for God, but we also have to realize our shortcomings and realize that all fullness of what we can offer to God ultimately comes from God himself. Any offering we can give, for example, if we give a monetary offering, we know that all that we have belongs to God already. He just asks for some of that back. And so this man here knows I need belief and I know I don't have it in as full a measure as I need it. Please, Lord, fill up that belief in me so that this can be accomplished. And this is just so humanizing. It is so incredible. It is so inspirational. Sometimes we feel like we're not enough, and this causes some sort of paralysis in us. This man realizes and knows that he's not enough and asks Christ to fill up what he needs so that he can uh, receive this blessing from God. And we can do the exact same thing. This is such an incredible display of God's love and mercy towards us because what does he do immediately after this? When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And this is interesting too because um, we often see Christ rebuking demons and casting them out of people. But then typically it's thought that it's up to us to keep those uh, evil influences out of our lives. We need to fill ourselves up with the Holy Spirit or ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit, fill ourselves up with right thinking and godly living. And then this shields us from evil influence, but we have this responsibility to live right and to fill ourselves up with God so that this vacuum left when these, these uh, evil things leave doesn't just welcome them back. It says in Matthew 12 verses 43 and 45, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. 
Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So this is interesting because it does show clearly our responsibility to have Christ dwelling in us, dwelling in our lives. Um, but then here, it, he forbids the spirit from entering back into the boy. But here, what do we have? We almost have it look like Christ is failing at this. First, we have the spirit coming and uh, convulsing the boy right in front of him, the show of power. Then we have Christ commanding the spirit to come out. And in verse 26, it says, Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. So this is like uh, one last show of power, one last show of rebellion. And then he's also not going out without a fight because it says, And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So what do we have happening here? Because this is really interesting. We should all be asking ourselves questions about this section. Why does it seem like Christ is struggling? Why does it seem like he almost fails here? Why does it seem like evil almost wins? And I think we can answer this question if we keep in mind the context that one, these two stories of the transfiguration and the healing of this boy with the unclean spirit are connected and they're connected by a lot of different things but remember they are bookended by teachings of christ to the disciples about his coming death and also his glorification at the resurrection these are the two messages christ is trying to show us and we've already seen how at the transfiguration he showed them his glorification and he showed them the ultimate end result of the kingdom of God. So then here, what is he showing them at this section when he's healing the boy with the unclean spirit? What do the disciples get out of this? Why do they put these two stories together, bookended by this teaching? I believe that he is showing us here a picture of the crucifixion. And we'll go through it step by step to show why I think this. First, at Christ's resurrection, he tells them that he has to be rejected by the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And here, at the beginning of this story, we have the ridicule, the argumentation, and the defiance of the scribes already shown to us. Then, we have this struggle at the crucifixion against evil, where it seems like evil prevails, right? Where Christ is defeated, where Christ dies, it seems like evil has won. This is the ultimate moment of rebellion for evil against Christ. And here in this story, we have this ultimate act of rebellion from this unclean spirit against Christ face to face with him. And then the conclusion is that through this moment where it seems like Christ is at his weakest, through this moment where it seems like he's losing, where all around him are doubting what's happening, where all around him are maybe frustrated if they're his disciples or they are vindicated or they feel vindicated if they are those who oppose him, where they see him losing is actually where he's winning the biggest victory. And here we have this as well in this story where life overcomes death and this boy is healed. Even though the father didn't have full belief, he asked for full belief. And through that belief, through the moment where Christ was at his weakest or seemed to be at his weakest, I truly don't believe he was ever at his weakest. I truly don't believe he ever struggled to perform this miracle. I think he was showing them this uh, scene or this parallel of this moment that had to come at his crucifixion after he had just shown them the glorification that was to come at the end of all things. 
This to me is amazing. It shows how in control Christ is to use every situation that's thrown at him, to use the free will of human beings, even just to teach a point to his disciples. And it's a point that they clearly got in how they ordered this writing and uh, what they chose to include in the Gospels. They wrote this all together to be this ultimate lesson that later on they finally realized after Christ was actually killed, after he was resurrected, then they wrote these gospels showing the lesson they had learned from this section. This is much more than just narrative. This is much more than just a cool miracle or a weird instance of a, a seeming struggle of Christ. This is a picture of the kingdom of God and a picture of the crucifixion of Christ that had to happen that the disciples were not ready to see. So he showed them a foretaste of it so they would be ready to see it. They would recognize it as it was happening. Now, clearly they still struggled. They didn't get it uh, right away, but clearly they got it later. So hopefully we can get it later as well as they write it down for us. Another amazing thing here, uh, if we look a little bit deeper in this section, we've already seen the parallels between Moses and Christ, as well as the elevation of Christ over Moses. Here we have a parallel of Elijah in Christ, even though he is elevated above Elijah. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we have Elijah reviving the widow's son. I'm just going to read that section real quick and we'll go through it. It says, now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house, this is the house where Elijah was staying, became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, now by this, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Look at all the parallels we have from this section in Elijah all the way to this healing of the boy with the unclean spirit. We have a mother desperate that her son is healed, but probably very frustrated, uh, not in the right mind of fully believing that this can happen. And she's kind of representative of a father, but also of this crowd of people that uh, is arguing or frustrated at maybe the lack of power displayed by God that they expect should be there at this time, both when uh, the disciples can't heal this boy and also here in this story when Elijah's entrance into the house seems to herald in the death of her child. But then you have Elijah coming and attempting to heal the son. And it says that he laid, uh, laid out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord. And so this is Elijah in persistence trying to heal this boy. He doesn't just try it once and it works. Doesn't just try it twice and it works. Tries it three times, cries out to the Lord. And then the child is healed. The child is revived. And then what happens? He brings the child down, returns him to the mother, just as Christ does to the father. And it's even written that way, which is really, really cool to me. Um, it says here, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. But then in other accounts, like in Luke nine, it says, then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child and gave him back to his father. 
Look also at this last verse here in 1 Kings 17, verse 24. It's really interesting. It says, Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. And imagine the bolstering of faith that would have come from this moment when Christ seems to raise this boy from the dead, especially for the disciples who had just seen not only uh, the glorification of Christ, but also the struggle and the overcoming of Christ in this section here. Imagine for Peter, especially, who struggled with the idea of, of his Messiah, his King, coming and dying and then being raised, which went against everything he previously believed about Messiah, seeing this struggle, but then seeing him overcome and realizing that he had just seen the power and glory of God and the kingdom of God in part as well. This would have been really, really cool for Peter. And it is a great way that Christ taught his disciples, not just in words, but also in actions, what had to happen. That is all the study I have for you today. I really hope you found this enjoyable and edifying and beneficial as we go deeper into the scripture, asking ourselves questions and thinking critically about what we're reading. This is, I think, to me, one of the coolest sections of the Bible. Uh, I love reading through it. I've loved doing the study, and I hope you've loved doing it with me as well. If you've listened through any of this and you say, yeah, okay, Micah, I see some of the parallels you brought out there, and I can see how some of them connect, but I'm not really sure that that's very helpful to me. That's totally okay. Take what's helpful, reject what's not. This is only meant to be a study, a deeper look uh, through commentaries and through different teachings by different people and uh, trying to read it as the scripture writers would have understood it, as the people of the time would have understood it, trying to draw out what Christ is trying to teach us. But in the end, I am not an expert on anything and I'm just doing a study as I see it. So don't take my word for absolute truth or anything like that. This is just a study and I really hope you have enjoyed it. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, continue to read your Bibles, continue to think critically about them, and please continue to apply the things we learn to your lives. Thanks so much, everyone.